Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. And as always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 658. It's a Thursday, and it is May the 6th or May the 7th or May the 5th. What the heck day is it? It's May the 5th, 2011, and um, you're listening to absolutely one of the final shows that will come to you from the now-empty home office in Arlington, Texas, and you will be hearing all your shows next week, or at least the majority of them from Hot Springs, Arkansas, as I head back up there for one more satellite trip before the final move. And uh, today, what are we going to talk about? We're going to sort of, kind of, in a weird way, extend on yesterday's show. Yesterday's show was all about how to find inexpensive land and how to turn it into your own little retreat slash bug out location. We're going to be anything from a vacation property to a true survival retreat, doing that on the uh, on the low cost angle. And I recommended M.D. Creekmore's book, which I think is an outstanding book. Again, by the way. Today you'd say, well, how exactly do you, you link this show to that show? Well, today what I'm going to talk about is taking raw land and making it fertile. To take land that you know is not set up to be a farm and making it into some sort of a farm-like thing. Not necessarily a farm. And uh, I'm going to do this from a permaculture angle, but it's really not just permaculture. A lot of it's just common sense. And I, what I really want you kind of to understand why I'm doing this is the reality is most of us are not just loaded with money. We're not just sitting on giant piles of cash. And to get into a homestead before we're 65 and live in the dream that the financial advisor pre- you know, presents to us, we might have to do things a little bit more low cost. And that's what we did what we did yesterday. Well, that generally means that we're not going to be buying like, you know, five acres of bottom land with rich, deep, black, fertile soil that's almost level that we can just throw a few irrigation ditches and swales into and start planting and just having stuff come up. Uh, that land is, you know, obviously more expensive than rocky or clay land or dry land or overly wet land or whatever it may be that we might have to buy or use to, uh, to get where we're going. And what I want to talk about today is how we take land like that and we turn it into something that's actually productive, that's actually fertile. Basically, what we're going to talk today about is different methods of what you could only call terraforming. Uh, I'll get more into that in just a minute. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready Made Resources. And what more can you ask for from a company for them to tell you this is our name, our name is what we do, and then we're going to go ahead and do it for you. That's what ready-made resources does. They provide all the resources you need for your prepping ready-made and ready to go. You order them, they ship them to your door, they show up, you get great service, you get great delivery, you get great pricing. What more could you ask for? Check out readymaderesources.com for everything from long-term storage food to gardening tools to self-defense implements to 12-volt products for your solar and wind projects. If you can think of it, they got it. Again, check out ready-made resources. Next up today, MERS Radio. MERS Radio is like my favorite little undiscovered technology for most people. 
You know, they're not like a CB. I can't talk to somebody 10, 15 miles away. I only got about a one, two mile range out of them. Uh, so, and they're not a ham, right? So I can't go bounce the signals off a satellite and talk to the other side of the world. So you might say, well, what does MERS really have going for it? Well, one, it's unlicensed. I don't have to take a test. Two, it's extremely portable. Uh, you little handheld radios that go anywhere. Uh, three, there's not a lot of people using it. So if you're kind of in a remote area, the odds that somebody's going to be intercepting and picking up your signal are very low. On top of that, there's, there's five primary frequencies, but each primary frequency has five sub-frequencies. And if you get like the third sub-frequency of the third primary frequency, the odds that anyone out in the middle of Jabip is going to be hearing what you're saying are extremely low. Next, we can add in motion detectors. So I have these motion detectors that I put out. You know, here in Arlington, I've got them in places like my back gate and my front door. So if somebody's sneaking around there at night, or if the dog's trying to get out during the day, I know what's going on. Nice information to have. Very affordable. And then the owner, uh, Rob of, of MERSRadio.com, is just freaking awesome. And if you have anything you're trying to do, he's either going to say, here's how you do it, or you can't do that. You're not going to waste time because he only has a small set of equipment. He knows it absolutely cold. He can do anything that can be done with it in the dark blindfolded. So what more could you ask for or for from an affordable, cool technology that blends secondary communications and security together? That's why I love MERS. So check out it's Again, it's MERS-radio. So MERS-radio.com. And the best way to make sure you're dealing with a sponsor, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on one of their banners in the right-hand menu. Uh, next up today, remember, connect with us Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, I got a new YouTube video that'll be coming to you next week from the bug out location slash homestead now. Uh, I just got the Eton Raptor radio sent to me. This is a new emergency uh, radio. It does not have a crank. It is solar powered only, or it can be uh, charged up from a, um, a USB cable plugged into any computer USB port. Of course, that would also work with a USB plug to the wall adapter then, which is pretty cool. Uh, I like my initial assessment of it so far. It's a big, big improvement over the Scorpion. And uh, it's got a lot of cool features that I'm actually still figuring out. So that video will be coming up next week. That's a great reason to subscribe to us on YouTube. Remember, when you do, click the little box so you get email updates. If you're already a subscriber, when YouTube made a change recently, if you had that enabled, they turned it off. Go check out your subscriptions that you want to be notified of, including ours. Uh, and rate on the, 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 the channel of the provider. So if you go to our channel, for instance, right where it says subscribe, and if you're already a subscriber, it says subscribe to ED, there's a little arrow. You click that, drops down. You can click a little box there, and every time I upload a video, you'll get an email from YouTube about it, and that way you can stay in touch. You need to do that because going into next month, we're going to start giving away items that we're reviewing, and the way to win will be in the video. So you want to be on the, every kind of notification there is of our videos. That's the way to do it. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at 20 cents an episode. You get discounts to 25 different vendors, and I'll be adding more vendors soon. Uh, so it's a great deal, great return of investment, and you're a bigger part of the community because you're supporting the community financially. But your support is not charity. You get a better return of investment. For the $50 you spend... You can easily get back two, three, four hundred dollars a year, depending on what you're buying and what you're doing. But if you're working in this world, if you're in the prepper homesteading world, you're buying this stuff anyway. Why not get the discounts that we've hooked up for you? On that note, kind of into the main topic of today's show with a couple announcements. Um, I have been mentioning that I have a military discount. And I've had about 
half a dozen guys say, hey, I'm in the military, I used to be in the military, I want the discount code, I give them the discount code, and I hadn't seen anybody signing up using the discount code yet. So I went in and I looked at the discount code and I screwed it up. And it was sitting there as an expired code because I didn't limit the date range, but I didn't check the box to not limit the date range. So if you've already asked for it and you tried it and it didn't work, go try it again and it will work. If you went and signed up anyway, email me, tell me you signed up, give me your MSB username and I will make it right and refund you the difference uh, and, and we'll sort it out from there. And uh, anybody else that gets in touch with me that is military from this point forward, you won't have a problem using it. So if you are military or prior service military, you can get a discount for the MSB. Next announcement, um, we made the server move, one of two. Uh, there's two sites for the Survival Podcast. TheSurvivalPodcast.com, that is the forum and the blog. And then there is Survival Podcast Net, which runs the MSB and the audio side of things. The blog and forum have now been moved. Uh, they were redirected last night. If you go to the forum and you can't post when it says old server in the title, uh, that just means it hasn't gotten to you yet. You can flush your DNS cache to kind of speed things up. But odds are by the end of today, it won't matter to anybody anywhere, and I'm counseling the old account. We'll be moving the audio and the MSB uh, next, and once that's done, we should have smoking performance for you. It's a big upgrade. It took some money. It took some investment. It took some time, but I believe it was worth it. Announcement's done. Let's get into this. Um, you know, kind of what I was saying there uh, toward the beginning is that what we're going to be talking about today is really terraforming. And that's a word that's used in like the space exploration sci-fi world. And the concept is, one day we'll go to Mars, and we'll either build these great big domes to create artificial atmospheres, or we'll actually alter the atmosphere of the planet itself. One way or another, we'll, we'll create an atmosphere that will support life. And then we'll begin to plant little tiny plants, and they'll produce oxygen, and that'll start to support animal life, and we'll go from there. Because there's plenty of CO2 there for the plants to utilize. So if we can get a place where there's water and reasonable temperature controls, we can actually make Mars look like Earth in little pockets anyway. Now, whether or not that can ever be done is, you know, the realm of the sci-fi writer and the scientist. And I'm not here to really talk about that today, but I want to put it in perspective for you. The fact that we can even think about that should make you realize how easy relatively it should be For us to go look at a piece of land that doesn't seem like very fertile land, it doesn't seem like it could support a lot of production toward human life, and say, well, since we don't have to worry about the atmosphere, since there's already some plant life here, since there's all kinds of sources of water all over planet Earth, 75% of the planet is ocean, since we can think, act, and do, and be as humans, and be more intelligent than the, the animals around us, and since there are areas on the outside of this system that we don't have to take a rocket back to Earth to get new supplies for, and we can bring in whatever we need, we should be able to pretty much terraform any place on Earth into something more livable. Now, if you said to me, Jack, my idea is to buy five acres in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and I want to know how to terraform it. I'd say so do I. I want to know how to terraform it too, and I don't think that's probably the best place for you to look. I'm sure it can be done, but how hard do you want to make things? But there is massive amounts of land out there, including land that already has small houses on it and things like that, that's not necessarily that beautiful bottomland farmland that's very affordable because people look at the land and say, you can't really do anything with it. 
Uh, it's too steep to build another house on, so I can't subdivide it into lots. Or there's no easement to get another road in there, so I can't subdivide it to lots. The soil quality is poor, so I can't turn it into a farm. It's also steep, so I can't. Whatever it is, there's all these reasons that the limitations are there in the mind of the property owner that doesn't want to do the work and doesn't understand how to do the work anyway. So what this results in is property that's more affordable, uh, specifically when you're looking at remote rent land, rural land, and things like that. So you might be in an area that's actually kind of a farmy type area, but then there's this piece of land that just kind of is on a different elevation, and it doesn't have the soil quality, and it's too much clay, or it's too much sand, or it's too much rock, or too much gravel, or whatever it is. And unless it's a slab of granite, it's still workable. So what I want to talk to you about today is how we take any piece of land, and I want you to understand, even if you're not looking for that remote land, you can do everything I'm talking about in a suburban backyard. The bigger, the better, when we talk about suburban backyards. I'm going to tell you that ideally, for this type of work, unless you're going to go out and buy an expensive tractor or hire equipment often, and unless you're trying to go to a full-scale commercial production, that five acres is about the maximum that you're going to really be able to work with heavily. If you have more land than that, you're almost better off leaving the balance of it going to pure wilderness, doing a little bit of forest management there, and using it for wildlife and things like that. Five acres is a massive piece of land. Two acres is a massive piece of land to truly design and manage this way. Uh, again, unless you're trying to go to a full commercial production. I think with two acres of well-managed land, most people could set up a CSA, have a very large supply of customers, have a secondary income stream, and produce the majority of their food at least through part of the year. So what my point is, is even if you find a greater piece of land, the part that needs to be workable is an acre or two to do an awful lot. Again, unless you want to be a full-scale commercial farmer, which is not really what we're talking about today, though these techniques would help you. Um, I also want to kind of talk about, so if we're going to do that, then we need to know when we look at a piece of land that we're going to design or evaluate for purchase, we need to know kind of what is the initial evaluation of that land. And to me, the first thing that I look at with any piece of land, whether it's a neighbor that says, come on over and tell me what I can do here, or a remote piece of land that I'm considering buying or a friend of mine is considering buying and has asked me to look at, is two things, and that's slope and sun. And slope will affect sun, and sun will affect slope, but it, I'm really talking about them in two different ways. When I'm looking at slope, I want to know what water is in the area, what is the rainfall in the area, and when rain falls on this land, how does that water travel off that property? And are there easy ways, are there things I can do to slow down or stop that water? And the reality is I can never stop it. Even if I put it in a lake or a pond, it's still got some seepage into the land. It's got some seepage into the bank. And even if I completely sealed that off with epoxy, there's not a drop of it coming out, that water's still moving. And where is it moving? Up. So we'll get into this in just a bit, but the permaculturist, uh, the natural you know, grower, however you want to call it, honestly, if you really understand water, your goal is to make it take a long, slow path instead of run out quickly. So I want to look at the slope, and if the slope is too excessive, maybe I can't slow it down, maybe I can't stop it. Can I terrace it? Is it pure rock, or is it so much rock that terracing is not practical? Is it a piece of land that's so steep that if I terrace it, I'm going to create a collapse? Or is it a piece of land that I can terrace? Is it it's got a gentle slope that I can really use? 
You know, does which way does it slope? And at the same time, I'm going to look at sun. I talked about this a little bit yesterday. The, the ideal piece of land has a lot of its slope facing south. And I want you to understand something. If you put your put your left hand in front of you, kind of like you're doing, I don't know if you, most of you guys don't even know this, even if you were in the military, but if you're ever holding the guide on the flag and you had to salute somebody in formation, you don't salute with your right hand or the flag like when you're when you're saluting for the whole formation. If you're saluting individually, you hold the the guide on in your right arm like it's you know vertical to your body. You take your left arm and you salute across the chest, right? So put your arm there like you're you're doing a straight, you know, perfectly level salute across your chest. Put it out in front of you a little bit. Look at your hand or your elbow and see that as a slope. All right. Now, if your elbow is south and your fingertips are north, and those of you on the other side of the equator, you reverse this, and, and you look at that, you have a certain amount during, especially the longer period of time, uh, the, the lower sun angles in the winter, where you have a certain amount of sun hitting that entire surface. And as it goes down, you, you lose that. You get only so much daylight. Everything you plant going from south to north shades what's north of it, which makes perfect sense. If you think of, imagine the sun directly, uh, you know, vertically lined up to your elbow, casting the shadow down your arm, and you put your finger there like a tree. It's going to cast the shadow towards your fingertips. Every degree that you increase the slope towards the south. So now put your hand on a slight angle so that the plants that are further north are a little bit higher. Basically, effectively increases the daylight hours for the plant. And if you can go up 15 degrees, you can literally add an hour to two hours of sun. So slope's not always bad, especially if it's facing the right way. So I want to look at the sun, the sun angles, and how they interact and interplay with the slope, the surrounding vegetation. I want to look at things that could be removed to let sun in. I want to look at definitely things that can never be moved, or I will not wish to move to let sun in. If it's on neighboring property, I have no control over it. I need to even look at, is my neighbor growing trees that are today 15 feet tall, that sometime in the future will be 40 feet tall? And how will that affect me? In relation to slope and sun, everything that I see when I first look at a piece of land is going to revolve around slope and sun. And it's a great way to be, and it's not the only thing you look at for God's sakes, but if you're looking at it agriculturally, so much revolves around that because permaculture is all about understanding energy. And I don't mean some etherical, mystical, fold your legs, go um energy. I mean energy like wind. Wind is energy, and we can turn that energy with a windmill into electricity, so we know it's energy. But even without the windmill, it blows. Well, it has an effect on the vegetation. Okay, Sun is energy. There's heat there. There's warmth there. There's light there. The plants use photosynthesis. That's why they're green, right? And they with chlorophyll, and they take that and they turn that into sugar and, and oxygen, right? By using CO2 and the solar energy. Well, since that's the case... If you're going to really understand living systems and design them, terraform earth that doesn't really support much now and make it support more later, then you have to understand that all of those energies have either a positive or a negative effect on what you're growing. Okay, So wind may have a positive effect. It may have a negative effect. It may overly dry things. So I may want to block it. At a particular time of year when the wind is just gentle but not harsh and it's hot, it may create cool spots. And if I control how it flows. So 
is sun, the same thing. I need a certain amount of sun on my plants so that they can have the photosynthetic cycle and grow. But I can also have times in the middle of summer where it's too much sun and it will burn them and kill them and scorch them and overly dry the earth. So the entire concept is, do I want the energy in, do I want it out, or do I want to control how much I let in? Well, the two biggest things that are going to affect that are going to be your slope and your sun angles. That's why they're so critical. Um, the next one is, you want to look at what's already doing well there. I, I often tell people, you know, see people that say, well, this land doesn't really, it's not really going to support anything. Oh, and you look around and it's full of oak trees and pine trees and hickory trees. And in the edges, off the trees where it's not in the forest, where the sun gets to the ground, there's blackberries and there's wild amaranth and there's lamb's quarters and there's all kinds of stuff that we can already use. Well, that already tells us that we've got something to work with. I mean, if we're looking at a barren desert hill and there's nothing there, and I mean, you go up, there's not even a blade of grass, okay, maybe you got a point, maybe that's not, maybe even if you could fix it, that's not the best use of your time. Maybe you need to pass it on that and find something better. But in most instances, when people say land is like that, there's all kinds of crap growing there. Like, look at all the weeds. All this thing does is grow weeds. Well, what are those weeds? Do those weeds have, you know, common lineage with modern crops that you would like to grow. If you find little weedy, spiky amaranth growing all around, well then it's reasonable that with a little bit of help, you could go in there and grow nice, great, big, giant grain amaranth. Because they're common, and they need the same things. You know that it's good amaranth land because there's amaranth there. If we go in and we look at something like Lamb's quarters growing well. We know that other similar plant types will probably do well. And even though they have no relationship at all, I can tell you that when you have land that will support lamb's quarters and they will reproduce themselves by going to seed and they just come back on their own, if you plant New Zealand spinach there, it will do the same thing for you. It's very hardy. Uh, it's going to die off when, once you get down to freezing temperatures, but it'll hand temperatures down in the 40s. Well, it'll hand, handle temperatures up into you know the, the 100 plus degree days as long as it can get moisture. Just like lamb's quarters, it'll survive. So we have to look about what's already there and doing well. And it almost doesn't matter what's doing well if, as long as we have diversity. If you go to a place and the only thing there are pine trees. Pine trees are kind of an initial pioneering species. They, they, they reclaim land, and that land may be very primitive in its form, and it may be very difficult due to some allopathic properties of the pines for you to convert that to anything, depending on why they're there. If they're there because they were planted, and you still have a lot to work with in clearing some out, you might be able to change that. But when you see a single species completely dominating an ecosystem, that's a sign that something's wrong. It might be a mineral deficiency, and that species may specifically be a type that's able to deeply mine that mineral. So if it's a mineral that's, that's deficient in the soil, but it's in the subsoil, it's down two feet deep, a species, for instance, like comfrey, which is a beneficial to have, but just as an example, they can put down a massive two-foot taproot and bore through just about anything other than solid rock to get there, is there because it's, des it's designed by nature to get that mineral when nothing else can. And as it uses that mineral, it'll basically mine it and bring it up and redistribute it. We can use that process. 
But whenever we see total domination by a single species on a piece of land, we know there's an imbalance that needs to be corrected. So as we're evaluating land, we have to say, in return for how inexpensive the land is, how much work am I willing to do, and what work is going to be necessary, and how much will it cost, and how long will it take? Because the reality is, in small pieces of ground, such as your vegetable beds and stuff, any imbalance can be corrected very easily. If you throw compost and mulch there long enough, you'll make fertile ground. Period. That's all it takes. And now, we can do other things like bringing in things like green sand to enhance those mineral contents and take shortcuts. But we can't do that across four acres. So we have to make a decision, what does it mean that the only thing here are blackberries? It's actually not a really, really bad situation. Blackberries can grow just about anywhere, but they're very reparative. And that means the land is on its way to being repaired by nature. But if the only thing there is freaking sagebrush, well, maybe we've got a different problem. If the only thing there is cedar, now we're going to have to work on eradicating that cedar, which is, as any rancher in South Texas can tell you, very difficult to do. So be leery, not completely avoid of, evoisive of, evoisive is the voice of a word, evasive of, or not, don't be completely ruling out land that seems to be dominated by species, but no, it's generally a signal that something's wrong there. Uh, next, and this is really, really important, if you talk to any good landscaper, and I'm talking about commercial, typical landscapers that do golf courses and do suburban homes of people that make a half a million dollars a year or more, they go out and completely design a landscape and they don't give a damn about uh, permaculture or organics or edible or anything, they just want a very pretty backyard, the kind of thing you usually see on HGTV and things like that. Uh, Jamie's Outdoor Room or whatever it's called. They will tell you that the very first thing that you design into your landscape and everything then revolves around is going to be all your hardscape. So if there's going to be a deck, the deck is going to go in first. If there's going to be a patio, the patio is going to go in first. The, these hardscapes, these things that don't change, go in first because, because they don't change. So we know once we build that deck, whatever effect it has on the property... It will continue to elicit that effect long term. And we also know, and this is, that's the deeper thought, right? The, the common landscaper knows that it's going to be a focal point, and it's going to be a constant focal point, so I need to design my softscapes around the deck. So I put the deck in, my customer uh, disagrees with me, and we finally choose a stained color to color it. And then I put in my hard rock edging and my flagstone back to the house and all this other stuff that doesn't sound like permaculture, but it could be if we did it right. And once that's done, now I need to go out and I need to select my plants and my softscapes. And I'm going to select based on height, color, and texture on how they marry with the hardscape. That's a very one-dimensional thought process, but it results in very attractive, tidy landscapes. Uh, we can take that principle and we can apply it to permaculture in a completely different way. Yes, if we're going to do patios and decks and things like that, this should go first. Because as a permaculturist, that deck may create an, a, a, a microclimate. The deck itself may create a tiny little spot that's shaded a little bit more than the others. And plants are a little bit more, you know, uh, affected by the sun. I might be able to plant there if they, they get a little too much sun otherwise. So that's one reason. But the bigger reason is that deck is going to block wind. It's going to have an effect on how water flows. It's going to do all of the things that any hard piece of material will do in a landscape. 
But with a permaculture mindset, then we have to take that further out. If we're going to be coming in and maybe hiring a guy with a machine or doing this manually or however we're going to do it, we're going to cut in swales, which are ditches on contour. So it's a ditch that's absolutely level. Instead of being designed to take water away, it's designed to hold, catch, and retain water and make it flow through the land. Or if we're going to do terracing, if we're going to come in and level certain spots, if we're going to put in raised beds, if we're going to put in a greenhouse, if we're going to do anything that's part of the overall infrastructure that's designed to slow that water down or provide a containment system, because a raised bed is a containment system. It contains you know, highly nutritive soil. We might not even be doing a raised bed. We just might do a terrace, and we know that it's going to trap a lot of nutrient. It's going to trap a lot of detritus. Then we're going to maybe start growing really fast-growing trees there, along with our long-term plant trees. And every time that the fast-growing tree gets to six feet, we're going to cut it back to three and throw the branches, just throw them on the ground, out in our outer zones, our zone threes, our zone fours, to create and build soil. Anything like that we're going to do. Well, we don't want to start planting stuff before we do that. That's our that's our irrigation system, even if it's not running drip lines. When you're putting in swales, when you're doing terracing, when you're putting in nutrient containment systems, when you're putting in ponds, uh, all of those things are part of your irrigation. So you wouldn't plant your raised bed and then dig it up and put your drip irrigation in. You would build your raised bed, you would put in your drip irrigation, and then you would plant your crops. So you have to look at that micro principle on a macro level and say, if that's what I would do with my 4x8 raised bed or my 4x12 raised bed, then that's what I'm going to do by my one or two acre plot. I'm going to put all these hardscaping things, all these land sculpting things in, all the things I'm pretty much going to do one time must come first before I work on that component of the land. So does that mean if you have a big sloping area and you're going to, you're going to terrace an acre of it into, into multiple terraces, And that's going to be kind of your zone two with your farm, you know, zone three with your trees and your bushes and your vines and your permanent crops. And you also have a zone one right out your front door that's pretty much the way it's going to be. Do you have to go do the, the terracing first? No. But before you plant up there, before you start planting what's going to go up there, you need to get that infrastructure in place. And most people, in their zeal to get something done, know the easiest thing to do is go down to the nursery, buy some plants, dig a hole, stick them in it, and then they'll grow. Well, now you've got this two-year-old apple tree that's really starting to do fairly well that's on a slope, and you want to terrace that slope. Now, you've either lost two years, or you're not going to be able to quite do what you wanted with the area. You see what I'm saying? So that's why it's so important to, to in your design to first determine what you want to do that's going to be permanent. And before anything else is done with that particular sector of land, do the permanent things first. Apply the commercial landscaping principle, hardscaping first. Uh, I've actually never heard that presented by any kind of permaculture lecturer or teacher, and it's something that I've always kind of intuitively known, and it's something I wanted to bring to you guys today. Um, not saying nobody else has ever done it, just I haven't heard it. The other thing is, and it's all part of that principle of doing the permanent things first, is the number one key to permaculture success is an understanding of water that's lacking in modern agriculture. In modern agriculture, water is seen as very, very important, but it's also seen as something that you, do, you can have way too much of. So we have modern agricultural systems, we have modern suburban systems that are designed to take water away. 
We want to hold just enough to do the job. We want to get rid of the rest of it. And we want to get rid of it quickly. Because if the field is flooded for a month out of the year, and that month happens to be the spring rains, and that's April showers, and that's my planting season, I can't drive my big-ass John Deere tractor into that muddy field because it's going to ruin the land and it's going to get stuck. But as a permaculturist, I understand that that just means that that land is that way now, and I can either change the way that land is at that time through design, or I can utilize that component. So some way I might change that is by planting some big-ass trees. And I might plant them on you know, the, uh, the, the north side of that muddy pit. And I might do something that can handle the mud like a cypress. And since they're on the north side, they're going to cast their shadow the other way where they're not going to interfere with the rest of my crops. Because my sun is to the south, because I'm in the northern hemisphere. And those trees, as they grow, become giant hydraulic pumps. That when that water's muddy, they will help pump that water out. I can do some things to, to maybe take some of that water away. But in reality, what I want to do as a permaculturist, is I want to identify the highest point on my piece of property, down to the lowest point on my piece of property, and with a few exceptions, I want to make that water take the longest, slowest path through that property, where the way most systems are designed, and this is what results in places being completely flooded out, is that water takes the most rapid path it can. Because there's two things, there's two ways water can move across a property. It can move across the surface or it can move subsurface. And there, that's really the only two ways it can move across. Evaporation, it can move up. It can be maybe pumped up into a tree, it can become part. But when we really think about it, we don't try to nitpick it. Once water enters your property, it's going to go from the high point to the low point. If you doubt that, take a, take a, a plate, put it in your sink, even on a tiny angle, and, and you know, turn your faucet on and let water run on the top of that plate. It's going to run off in the direction of slope. And the higher the slope, the faster it will run. So the way that we accomplish this is we force the water into the soil. And it's important to understand that when we do that, the water doesn't stop moving. It will continue to go downhill. Nothing will stop it other than an impermeable layer. And if it did hit that, it's going to spring out and go back to the surface and spring out. And eventually, if we have the land designed right, even where it springs out, it's going to soak back in and resume its course. If the water's moving under the surface, it moves slow. And that means all of the things that we've planted have an opportunity to drink of the water before it exits your system. This process whereby it exits your system can be described as entropy. We lose energy as it goes down. And we want to hold it back. And permaculture success, more than anything else, in my opinion, and I'm not a certified permaculturist or anything, I'm just a, a student of the system, but their biggest success to me is that understanding. All life needs water. Even the plant that grows in the desert, it's there because it's able to obtain its water in very different ways. It's, it's able to go deep enough to find it. It's able to use transpiration. It's able to use condensation. It's able to use something, but it, it's not growing without water. It's not happening. There are no plants that if we put them in a completely 100% arid situation and give them no water, will grow. Not that I know of anyway. And permaculturists have understood that no matter where we are, there is water. And no matter, almost no matter where we are, there is rainfall, even in the desert. You know, maybe it's 10 inches a year. And if we control that rainfall, it can do a lot of work for us. 
But if we just let it run away, then we have periods of extremely wet and the rest of the time it's extremely dry. And now we have to do artificial irrigation. So even if we are going to do some drip irrigation, even if we are going to do some, some pumping and use a well or, or whatever, even if we're not going to go 100% irrigation free, everything we do to slow that water down limits the amount of irrigation. So that's less energy, that's less money, and that's less work. And that's what this is really all about. It's building a sustainable system that you manage versus an unsustainable system that you have to keep it going. You have to constantly give it inputs. Um, next, you have to start thinking in two different ways with this process. If you're sitting on even a two-acre piece of land, and that doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people, but when you actually stop and you look at two acres and you realize that I want to make maximum use of this entire plot, it's actually quite large. And all the things we've been talking about up to now really are designing at the, the, the macro level to be looking at the totality of the system, and this is how the water flows, and this is entropy of the energy lost through the system, and even ways that like once the water's about to exit the system, because I, can I put any of that energy back up into the system and let it, you know, enter feed down through the system again? So if you had a place with quite a bit of moisture, for instance, you could have a little silt trap pond right at the lowest point in your property. And in there you could grow rushes and reeds. And they would take up all the nutrient that you lost as that water flowed through your property. Because that nutrient would dump into that pond and you gave a very nutrient-absorbing reed and rush to plant in that pond. So right before that water and nutrient exits your property, you're going to catch it one more time. Now you cut down your reeds several times a year, you shred them up, and you take them back high up into your system. Even if the slope's very gradual, you're just taking it to the other high side, and you use it as a mulch. And now that nutrient and some of that moisture goes back through the system again. That's a macro level. And we have to design at the to totality of the system to have an effective total system. But we also have to at times design by the foot. You know, the way to do that is to get those hardscapes in, in as quickly as you can and then start working on your zone one. Walk out of your door and the first foot that you can grow something, design that foot. Understanding that what you do next could shade it out or what have you. So think about the energy flows. But literally designing a foot at a time, what goes there? What goes here? What goes there? It seems like a very laborious process, but what happens is it actually starts to, it actually starts to help you. By, by doing that, when you get to the next foot, you go, I know what to do now. And then it just starts to lay itself out, and nature just starts to help you take over. And you, you can change everything with those two concepts blended together. But when you're designing in totality, don't forget to stop and look at the individual square foot. And it might take you a year to do your zone one. And your zone two might just be terraced or whatever. Or zone three might just be terraced or whatever. And a few plants up there. And before you get really into intensive management of that, you might spend a year working on your zone one, but that's okay. All we have is time. All we have is time. Um, the next one is you have to start thinking in guilds versus crops. And this is about thinking about beauty. To me, this is what this is about anyway. Beauty versus neatness. The, the goal of man in most landscaping and farming, even just basic monoculture farming, seems to be neat and tidy. You think about the way farms are grown. They're really grown these big irrigation circular fields, or they're grown in these nice straight lines. And there's some modern mechanization that, that necessitates that, but that's what people do. That's what we do. We create straight lines and circles. Look at swimming pools and backyards. 
Swimming pools are a circle or an oval or a square. Okay? Backyards are pretty much a square. Get on Google Earth. Pull up any suburban location. And you'll see some oddly shaped yards like mine because they were kind of stuck in the back of a cul-de-sac and the owner got lucky. But the majority of the yards will look like what? Rectangles. They'll be straight lines and they'll be fairly evenly spaced. This is how we design. It's not how nature designs. So if we go to a forest that's on the edge of a field and we've got like a meadow and a forest coming together and creating an extremely fertile edge where the two come together and we've got all types of plant and animal life, we stand there and it's, there's no doubt about it that it's breathtakingly beautiful and it's better than any human being can do in a conventional landscape. But there's nothing tidy about it. So then we go out and we try to design a natural system and we try to force it into straight lines and circles. It doesn't work. It won't work. It can't work because it's not how nature works. It's like pouring glue into the gas tank of a car and then bitching that the car won't start. Of course it won't start. The car's designed to run on gasoline. Doesn't run on glue. Doesn't run on water. You know? It, it doesn't run on beer. If you want the car to start, you gotta put gasoline in it. If you put glue in it first, even when you put the gasoline in, it won't run. So if we're going to design these systems to be effective and to be natural and to work the way nature intends, then we have to design with nature instead of opposing nature. So we have to think in guilds versus crops. Crop mentality is that this is where my peas go, this is where my radishes go, this is where my apple trees go, this is where my peach trees grow. Okay, and that's that's and you should keep going from there. This is where my hazelnuts grow. This is where my grapes grow. And even the, it could be a really nice system with a lot of lot of diversity, but everything's kind of cut up into its own little place. Gilding means I plant a whole bunch of stuff together, and the ones that fall off and die fall off and die. And the ones that do well together, I know they naturally support each other. And then I take that guild model, I use it somewhere else, and it either does better or worse. And then I ask myself. Which, you know, if it does better, what's different about this new location? Is it moister? Right? Is it a more moist area or is it a more dry area? Does it have more sun exposure or less sun exposure? Is it a more exposure to certain winds or less exposure to certain winds? Is the ground temperature generally warmer or cooler? You know, is it, is it adjacent to some other guild? Is it, you know, is it adjacent to an area with a lot of blueberries in it where I know there's a naturally higher acidic you know, content of the soil? So by thinking that way, I can move my guilds around and I can define, the, you know, once I, I just kind of put a guild together and I do some things based on historical knowledge, and, you know, what plants make good companion plants, how they work well together that way. Once I do that, I can then start to experiment by changing the location of that guild and the inputs to that guild. And I can find the ideal location for that guild. And you say, well, Jack, give me ten guilds I can plant. No, you create your own. That's the whole point. Now, you can go look at what other people have done. You can emulate that. Or you can think about the things you want in your ecosystem, take the things that naturally should do well together, put them together, and see what happens. Instead of trying to take everything and put it into one location, when you do that, you create so many problems. First of all, let's look at a typical crop like, let's say, I don't know, corn. Corn gets a bad rap. Okay, it really does. But and we get it, we give it a bad rap because it grows in such a way that it's so nutrient uh, demanding. It's a nutrient thief is the way we look at it. 
We don't understand that it also has the potential to be a nutrient trap. We just see the nutrient removal. And then we plant it in a half acre, even on a small scale situation. I mean, five acre farm, we plant it half acre of corn. Uh, even the permaculturist might think this way if they're not a true permaculturist. And they put that half acre there. And, and then, then they're surprised, I was just shocked, that the corn borers show up and eat their corn. Well, you rang the dinner bell. And as far as the nutrient extraction, you've planted a half acre wholly with a plant that takes a specific nutrient demand out of that half acre. So how can you then turn around and be surprised that those specific nutrient profiles become deficient rapidly in that half acre? You will never go out in nature and see, let's say, you know, wild blueberries real wild. You'll find an area that's full of blueberries. Man, there's blueberries everywhere. But when you walk through that patch of blueberries, you will not see a situation where nothing but blueberries grow. In fact, you will probably see different varieties of wild blueberries growing together. You'll see sphagnum moss in some areas growing underneath them. And those blueberries are going to be great big and plump because we have our own little mini hugel culture going on there. There's probably wood in the ground there, and that's why that moss is growing there, and it's going to hold more moisture in, and that's going to be a, a wet area. But you're going to see all different kinds of trees coming up and different plants, and it's not going to be all in perfect straight lines and rows. It's going to be all over the place with all kinds of diversity in it. So what that means is while the blueberry is doing its thing and it's taking up nutrients blueberries need, there's a plant right next to it taking up completely different nutrient profile. Maybe some of the same ones, but in different profiles, at different amounts, at different times, at different levels in the soil. The blueberries are going to go down to a place where the soil is stratified to its highest acidic content within reason. Well, the plant right next to it may actually be a plant that grows better in a slightly alkaline soil. And you say, how do these two plants grow together? Well, in nature, no one comes out there with a rototiller once a year and turns the soil up and makes the pH you know, constant at all stratified levels. The soil actually stratifies. And if you, if you went in there and you dug out you know, a, a ditch and you looked at it from the side, you could actually see layers in there, almost like rings of a tree. And the plants are going to go down to the layer that gives them most of what they need and they're going to grow there. As they do, they're going to take nutrients up. Some of that nutrient will go into its fruit or seed production. Much of it will go into its herbaceous growth, its leaves, its stems, its stalks. Sooner or later, if it's deciduous, winter will come and a lot of those things will fall off. Or eventually the plant will die. Or a deer will come by and eat a portion of it and crap it out on the ground. But one way or another, a lot of the nutrients that it mines from the soil are going to end up in decaying matter on the surface of the soil going back into the system. Now, if all we do is plant a crop like corn, and I'm not trying to give corn a bad rap because it can be freaking radishes, folks. If all we do is we plant that crop in a monoculture environment where they're all the same instead of a guild environment where we have diversity, so they all take the same thing, and when they're done growing, we pull them out and take everything away, not just the, the yield, the radish root or the corn seed, but everything goes, then that nutrient has been taken up out of the soil, and it's been taken away, and it's gone. And now we have to bring an artificial input in to return it. But if we grow multiple varieties, and everything that we don't use, we just shred up, cut up, or chop and drop, and put right back on the soil, the soil actually gets better. Because the plants with those deep root systems that went way down there and brought up those minerals and used photosynthesis and trapped solar energy now are building the soil versus thieving from the soil. You can't do that with a single crop. It cannot be done. 
I did a whole talk on permaculture in California at dirt time about three years ago. And at the end of it, a guy came up to me that ran an orchard, a peach orchard, and uh, peaches and apricots, I believe. And he said that basically he can't do what I said. He can't just use compost and mulch and be fully organic. But, you know, all he uses is some fertilizer. He doesn't use insecticides. There should be a different label for things that are grown pretty much in a, in a, in a natural way versus organic, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But his overall summation was... Okay, I can't do what you just said in my orchard of my, life, my, my peaches and my nectarines that are all perfectly lined up. And there were people around me that were real fans of the permaculture thing and organic thing and are just saying, the compost will do it. That's all you need is compost. But, and, and, but the reality is he could go down there and he could lay down mountains of compost that's still not going to work. Well, why? Because he's going to be constantly sucking one specific nutrient He has absolutely nothing else growing around him. He's got it designed to drive a picker through. And he's got a monoculture. So he's right, it won't work. And I understand that a person that's in that situation, it's very hard to tell them, well, you know, you got to remove about 50% of your trees and plant different trees and change things up and bring in multiple a multiple-layered system. But that's the truth. If you want it to work, that's how you have to do it. And I want to, I've done shows where I really go into the layers, but I just want to go through them real quick for those that may not have heard them uh, before on today's show because I want you to think about this in your totality of design. And this is really the forest garden, but what you have to understand is any of these systems can be broken down into subsystems. So I'm going to start out talking about trees, but this could be... I want you to look at how you could use just three or four of these layers in a more uh, a smaller system on a different part of your property. So your, your layers are your canopy trees. Those are your big climax forest trees, the ones that are huge, the ones that are going to be there for 50 to 100 years. We step down to the second level, that's the subcanopy. That's your smaller trees that grow in the understory, that grow out toward the edge. Maybe in some ecosystems are just younger trees that haven't canopied out yet. Maybe they're trees that are designed to grow in the understory like a pawpaw. Pawpaws are not designed to turn into canopy trees. They are an understory tree. In your, your human-controlled design, maybe they're a dwarf fruit tree growing just a little bit out from a standard fruit tree. But you have a canopy and a subcanopy. Then you move to a shrub layer. As you move to your edges, if you think about any field that goes up to a, to a wooded a wood lot, right as you get to that place where the two come together, you stop having grass and weeds and things like that, and you start finding uh, brambles and bushes and shrubs. And then the shrubs will go back a little bit into the forest. If you go back far enough into a big climax forest where there's huge shade, the only thing there is understory shrubs and trees, your subcanopy again. But as you get out toward where that sun is, you've got that massive tangle of your shrub layer. Then you've got a herbaceous layer. That's pretty much your fields, and that's any plant that's not a shrub or a tree or you know or a vine. That's your grass, that's uh, your herbs, that's anything that's just a plant. So you've got that layer. Uh, then you've got your what you call your soil surface layer. These are the plants that maybe only grow an inch or two tall. They spread out all over the ground. They could be a moss. They could be a, 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 a just a basic type of a runner plant. They could be a strawberry. But they actually form a natural mulch because they help prevent evaporation by being down there. We generally look at plants and we, we look only at what they take. In, in modern agriculture, we say, well, that plant is competing with all the other plants because it's taking nutrients, it's taking moisture, but it's also holding moisture in. And as parts of it die, it's also building soil. It's also holding soil. 
Right? Every plant with a root system is holding soil. So we have a uniform root structure. Again, we go back to a, a half acre of corn. The roots are all exactly the same. So it's easy for soil to erode, even though there's a lot of roots there. Why? Because they're all the same, so they have common channels. If you think about the way water flows through something, if you put it all uniform, it'll find those nice common channels and it'll run there. And there goes your nutrient and there goes your soil. So what you don't steal with the plant take away in monoculture, water and wind just take away because it's easy. Because the root structures are simplistic. Because they're identical to each other. But we get into a place where we have these multiple layers and these different plants and different root structures. Some roots are high, some roots are low, some roots are complex, some roots are simple. And it creates a very complex path for water and nutrient to get out. You see how much better it works if you just let nature show you the way? And that doesn't mean you just let whatever happens, happens. We can participate. We can accelerate this process. We can improve on nature with basically terraforming. But not by breaking the rules, by understanding them and harnessing them. Back to the, the, uh, the layers, though. Then we go to what are called the vertical climbers. <clears throat> the vertical climbers are your vines. So as, as we look at kind of the, 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 the next layer, we're really looking at the vertical climbers. And those are going to be real simple to understand. If it goes up into uh, and climbs on other plants, it's a climber. It's a vine. So anything that's a vine is your next layer. And then... Your last one is your rhizosphere. And that's anything with a root yield. So a typical agricultural plant with a root yield would be a potato or a radish or a carrot. Uh, but there are other things that are out there that are more of a natural plant that have a root yield. Um, a Jerusalem artichoke is you know, a wild native plant to North America. They grow all over the place. They have a root yield. Uh, a groundnut. And what I'm not talking about, some people apparently in countries other than America, groundnut means peanut. Uh, I'm not talking about a peanut, uh, even though it is an example of a root yield. I'm talking about Apius americana, which is the, the, the North American groundnut, a native wild plant. That is both a climber and a viner and a rhizome. So one thing to understand is it's not always a clear delineation. Well, it is, is, it a, is it a herbaceous plant or is it a shrub? Well, what is it doing in the ecosystem currently? Is it, is it acting as, as a herbaceous layer or is it grown up to a shrub layer? Is it a, a vine or is it a rhizome? Well, maybe it's both. But understanding these layers again, again, canopy, subcanopy, shrub, herbaceous, soil surface, vertical climbers, and rhizosphere helps you start to design. And like I said, that's really about the forest garden, but we can take that out, right? If we take and we go to our just our, our, our vegetable gardens and we start to do gilding with our vegetable gardens, some of those vegetables are a root yield. Some of them are a herbaceous yield. Some of them are a ground cover. And some of them may be a climber. So we might have something that is a herbaceous uh, yield, but it's almost a canopy in the system. Amaranth. Seven feet tall. You know, it's nothing compared to a tree, but it grows seven feet in 60 to 70 days. It's the monster of the garden of the herbaceous layer. It acts like a canopy. And then growing up, it maybe we have pole beans. Well, now we have a vining crop. And in its shade, in the summer when it's a bit too hot for them normally, but they when the amaranth was small and it was early in the year and it was cool, there was full sun, and now it's given a little bit of cooling, maybe we have carrots and there's a, there's a, a root yield. And when the carrots needed the full sun, when it was still cool out, it was there, 
And later in the year, when if it got too hot, your carrots would start to grow a little bit too fast or bolt or go to seed or have deformations and, and not be able to hold in the ground long enough to get to the size you want, the shade's there. So we can bring the, the, the concepts of these layers down to the individual system. I also want to talk real quick to you about, as we're getting ready to wrap up today, I want you to start thinking more along the lines of, I don't even care if you call it permaculture or not, I really don't. Um, it's a it's a phrase coined by Bill Mollison that, that can mean different things to different people, and Bill wants to tell you what it's supposed to mean to you. And I'm not putting him down for that. I'm just saying that's the way that it is. And, and most of these techniques are ancient. And what permaculture as a design system is about is going back and taking what they did in Thailand and what they did in, in, in Mesoamerica and putting the two together and then bringing modern technology on top of it. So it's about taking all these traditional systems and making them better and enhancing them and, and, and marrying what works one place with what works with another place and coming up with a whole new way of combining them. But to me, that's about natural growing. And I almost would love to see a whole new thing happen that's completely voluntary and it's voluntary disclosure of the people selling the product. It's not a license or, or maybe it's a trademark term to protect it from bastardization, but naturally grown or natural growing systems or something like that. Organic really means carbon-based. You're an organic life form. If you look out your window like I am right now, I see a couple doves and a squirrel and a blackbird and some chickadees and stuff like that out there eating the bird seed I put out there for them. They're all organic. It doesn't mean that they've been raised organically according to the government and the, and the meaning of the brand. But they're organic. They're carbon-based life. The grass out there that they're walking around in is organic and carbon-based. I would like more people to start thinking that way. And I don't really care about it on a commerce level that much other than, you know, if I go to a local grower at a farmer's market and I, and I look at his produce, I might ask, how do you grow it? And I'd like him to be honest with me about that. And if he uses a little bit of fertilizer, I'm not necessarily not going to buy from him. But if he's spraying it with insecticides, then we've got an issue. So I'd like us to start thinking, at least in our own production, on small-scale production, and whether or not it has any effect on commerce, I don't really care about naturally grown versus the concept of organic, because organic has become stupid and, and bastardized. And it's gone into mass market. Once something goes into mass market, it's corrupted and ruined. It really is. Um, we have things being done today under the organic label that most of us have no idea about, and we sure don't think of when we hear organic. Uh, we have people like Monsanto and ConAgra and these other big agricultural companies making a push to get GMOs accepted by the organic community and having success doing that. They haven't actually pulled it off yet, but they're making real inroads. They're saying, look, if we give you BT corn that naturally produces BT, and organic practices allow the use of BT, what's wrong? Right? So, yes, if we gave you Roundup-ready corn and you sprayed it with Roundup, that would not be organic. We admit. We're, we're reasonable people. Come on. We're Monsanto. We're your friends. We want organic and commercial things and, and conventional things to side by side. And have clear, so you don't spray your organic corn with Roundup for God's sakes, but there's no problem with us taking a fish gene, sticking it in your corn, and then you don't have to worry about spraying it with BT. You get rid of the corn bores, and it's your, it makes it easier to be organic. Uh, no. No, I'm sorry. If you're using transmutational genes, uh, with a transmutational virus, uh, it's not organic. Not by what I think that the word was supposed to mean. So, in our backyards, I'm not worried about whether or not every practice I take 
if I was trying to sell my food, would allow me to put the organic label on it. What I am worried about is, are these things natural? Because another example of how stupid organic is, let's say that I decide I want to open up Jack's Ginseng, okay? And it's all wildcrafted ginseng. I go out in the forest and I go out and I gather it. And maybe I only gather a small amount a year and I have a very small customer base, but uh, I sell it online, jacksginseng.com. And you can come there and you can place your orders and I don't take your money until harvest because I don't know how much I'm going to get. And it's first come, first serve, and then I'm done for the year. You would think, <laughs> since I'm going out in a native forest where no fertilizers, no pesticides, no nothing have been used, and maybe it's Jack's ginseng and ground nuts, right? So I go out and get the ground nuts too. That I would be able to say 100% organic, 100% certified organic. I can't. If it's wild crafted, if I get it out of the woods, if I didn't control it from seed to stem, it's not eligible for the organic label. So as you're trying to put together your systems, just stop using the word organic when it comes to what you're growing in your backyard. Because that's a marketing tool versus a reality check. Ask yourself, is what you're doing natural? And if you're growing a certain crop and you have to bring in a little bit of fertilizer, it's not necessarily bad. I'm not really opposed to fertilizer as a thing. I'm opposed to its practice. The reason I hate fertilizer so much is because, first of all, the farmers do exactly what I said. The same crop in the same property, spaced at the same distances, and they have this terrible effect on the soil structure. They plow it every year. They turn it over every year. And they lose massive amounts of topsoil every year. Maybe they throw a little bit of organic matter back in there just to hold it together. But then they saturate it with this, with this artificial fertilizer. They create a very unbalanced situation. That kills off all the organisms in the soil, including things like the, the, the naturally occurring bacteria that will bond with legumes to produce nitrogen. So then they have to inoculate their legumes to get them to do what they do naturally because they've killed off the soil. And every year the soil gets worse and worse because the solution is easy. Dump fertilizer on it. That's not that the fertilizer's bad. It's that it's being used as a, as a silver bullet versus a supplemental thing. So the person that sprinkles a little fertilizer once a year in the garden and it's a slow release for even if it's not an organic fertilizer. I don't personally do it, but I don't I don't see it as an atrocity for God's sakes. It's nitrogen, it's potassium, right? You know, I mean it's what the plant in phosphorus. It's it's the three main things the plant needs. But if we rely on it as our sole method of getting those three nutrients, then we become depleted in minerals. And it just, eventually the system degrades. If you're building a natural system, it should build toward a climax. And at maturity, its production actually does begin to go down. So if a forest will grow to a point of climax and then decline, and these are thousand-year processes, and they'll repeat themselves over and over again. But if you're going toward a climax... The land can't be getting worse. It has to be getting better. If we're going to terraform land and make it into something that it isn't, we can't be sending it into decline by dumping fertilizer on it. We have to think about things in moderation. So please think more in 
the, the concept of natural growing and stop worrying about whether or not something you're using is certified as, is for organically grown. Unless you're selling under the organic label, it's nonsense. Okay? Um, the next one and one of the last ones I want to talk to you about you, uh, talk to you about today is don't try to put square pegs in round holes. You know, I get people, oh, I'm trying to grow this plant in this area and it's really, really wet and I can't get it to grow. What do I do? Stop trying to grow that plant there. Or change the environment. Either you need to create some level of drainage and move that water with entropy to another part of your system so that it can be more effectively used in both areas. Or you need to affect that, that, accept that that's a wet area and plant something there that grows in a wet area. You have a really shady area. I'm trying to shady area and I'm trying to grow beans. They don't grow good there. Well, get out to the edge of the shade. They'll do great. So they get some shade and some sun and they get mottled because a bean is a forest plant, especially a vining bean. That's why they have the great big ass leaves. Squash, same thing. But don't try to plant it at the trunk of your oak tree that's canopied out in climax. It won't grow there. You've already figured that out. Stop trying to do it. And there's so many people out there. I listen to the gardening shows and all. Call it in with questions that are basically, how do I jam this round peg into a square hole? And unfortunately, most of the guys out there in that business try to tell them how to do it. Well, trim the oak tree so that you let some more sunlight. And maybe that works, but isn't it easier just to move that plant? Plant, you know, get some logs and grow mushrooms under there. Plant some English ivy, let it grow up your, your, your tree. It's beautiful. It'll help hold the moisture in the ground. It'll help solve some of the moisture problem if it's in a low area. So out from the shade, whatever you plant is not soaked in water. See the solution, not the problem. And adapt to the situation. And then the last thing that I want to talk about today, kind of it, it, it kind of goes in that same vein. But it's how I want you to think differently as you're trying to make your environment into what you want it to be. And I call it naturalist versus monoculturist versus permaculturist. The monoculturist is the person that wants to grow soy and corn, maybe. And they have two great big monoculture plots. And maybe, maybe they do enough where they, at least they rotate corn here, soy here, then soy here, corn here, and then wheat and barley, barley and wheat, corn and soy, wheat and barley, barley and wheat, wheat and, you know, they do crop rotation, but that's about it. But it's all the stuff we've talked about, so I don't need to go into that. But then I think a lot of people get into the permaculture mindset with a naturalist mentality. And they go and they watch a YouTube video and some guy's like, we have over 494 species of plants on our one-acre plot. And they go, wow, I want 494 species of plants on my one-acre plot too. But I got two acres and I can do even better than that, so I want a 1,000 species of plants on my two-acre plot. So they go out and they, they, you know, from locally harvesting, from buying stuff, from grafting, whatever it takes, they pump a thousand species into their two acre plot. And odds are, they're not all going to make it. So then they start acting like the guy with the spinning plates. You know, it has like 15 poles up and everyone has a plate and he has to keep running between them and he keeps getting the plate, go, 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 get as fast as you can. Okay, that one's about to wobble and fall off. Go over here, go over here. And some of the plates will fall, but if he just keeps running long enough of his 15 plates, he'll keep 12 in the air and everybody's impressed. So they plant their thousand species and then they work their ass off nonstop to keep them alive. And the thousand could be 500, the thousand could be whatever the number is. They try to keep them all alive. 
They end up with 800 of the 1,000 making it or 150 of the 250 making it. And then they're focused on the 100 that didn't make it or the 200 that didn't make it. And they're trying to put it back together and try to keep them going because they're thinking like a naturalist. I want diversity for the sake of diversity. I want a museum. I want an arboreum. When people walk through here, I want to be able to say there's that plant and that plant and that plant. And if I've picked a plant, I want it there. And I understand the compulsion. I want as much diversity and variety and, and usability as I can get because diversity is strength, especially in a natural system. But the permaculturist plants his thousand species, 500 die, and he goes, I don't give a shit. I don't care. Unless one was a key cash crop that I think I can fix, I don't care. I just taught me those 500 are not really suited for this area. But I got 500 that are growing their ass off and I don't have to do anything with. And I don't care whether it's 100 species you're working with or 200 or 50 or 75 or 1,000. That's how, if you're going to be a permaculturist, that's how you have to think. You do everything you can to give a species that you introduce an advantage so that it'll grow. You figure out what its needs are, what its input requirements are, what it gives back. You plan it strategically. You put it into your design. And if it fails, maybe you try one more thing to make it work. If it doesn't work, you plant something else. And you keep building your diversity based on what works in your area. Because if you want to grow vanilla orchids and you're in Tennessee, it freezes there. They are not going to make it without a greenhouse. Plain and simple, you can't grow vanilla in Tennessee out in the open because every winter, like clockwork, it's going to die. Well, that's pretty obvious. All right? Can't grow an orange in Pennsylvania without a sheltered greenhouse, without an arboreum, because it's going to get cold and the tree is going to freeze and it's going to die. So we accept this. And then we turn around and we don't realize that that's, that's cut and dry, right? That's black and white. We know that this tree cannot grow here. We know that some trees have a chilling requirement. That a particular variety of cherry has to have at least 250, let's say, chilling hours. That's hours in the winter below freezing. And if we take it to a place like Miami, it's, it'll, maybe it'll grow into a tree, but it won't produce worth a damn because it doesn't meet its chilling requirement. So we even understand that. We start to go a little bit of a shade of gray. Then we don't realize that that one little plant from Borneo that we've planted there that's supposed to work in, you know, from zone four to zone seven, and we're in six, and my God, why won't it grow? Maybe it's pH. Maybe it's the other things that you've planted around it. Maybe there's a native thing there that eats the hell out of it that doesn't exist in Borneo. I don't know. But there's some reason certain things just aren't going to do well in your ecosystem. You can't create on your terraform piece of land, the climate of the entire globe. So you can't grow the species of the entire globe. So it's one of those things that it's more of a throw it up on the wall and see what sticks. And the things that stick, we go and we plant things that are related to or similar to in requirement. And we keep doing it, we keep repeating it, and eventually we build this massive diversity system and everything that's growing there supports each other because anything that doesn't fit into the guilds falls off. And we accept that. We let it fall off. Even if it's something we really had our heart set on. And if we really had our heart set on, I want to be in Tennessee and I want to produce vanilla orchid, locally grown or, you know, locally, locally grown natural vanilla from Nashville, Tennessee. Well, I'm going to have to have a heated greenhouse to do that. I'm not going to try to force that into my guilds out on the slope that's exposed to the, to the summer or the, uh, to the winter snows because it won't work. If you can accept the black and white, accept the grays. It's natural selection. Some stuff's going to die off. Some stuff's not going to make it. That's okay. That's where the diversity really starts to come in and play together. 
If you do see a species dominating, maybe you have to, as a designer, reach in and pull it back so it doesn't take over the whole system. But if a, if a certain thing won't do well, give it up, let it go. It's okay. That's why we plant 200, 300, 500 varieties. If you were a business person and you owned 500 corporations and 50 went to bankruptcy, you wouldn't care. You'd focus on the 450 that are paying the bills. And you'd be a very wealthy person. In a permaculture solution, if you put in 500 species and 50 die, you focus on the 450 that survive. And they'll make you very wealthy from an output and from an ecological standpoint. And I think that's it for today. I hope this was a good show. It's a different way to look at permaculture. I've never quite done it this way before. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it too. Uh, tomorrow is Friday, so I'll be answering your phone calls to 866-65-THINK. The calls I'll be answering tomorrow are probably more recent than some of you guys that have been waiting a while. I have two computers I'm working off of in two different locations now. So next week for the Friday show, it'll be some of the older ones. But get your questions in. I love getting you guys to call that number again, 866 65-T-H-I-N-K, and we'll try to get you on an upcoming show. Usually two to three weeks is how long it takes. You're more likely to get your call answered than an email because there's just less call volume. Then next week, we're going to take some hard looks at the economy. We're going to take a look at what the hell's going on with silver. It just lost 20% of its value, but it's still way the hell up. Do I buy? Do I sell? Do I hold? I'll tell you what I think next week, and I'll probably know more because more things will happen by then. Remember, I am putting together the money-saving show for Tuesday next week. You can send me email uh, with TSP Money Saver in the subject line for Tuesday's show right up until Sunday is when I'll be putting the show together. So send me your tips and tricks for saving money and putting dollars back in your pocket. If you have something about silver or gold that you want me to see, Put TSP Metal or something like that in the subject line to help me identify it, and that'll be Wednesday's show next week. We have to take some good hard looks at the economy next week, but on Thursday I'll throw something in more like today to keep it mixed up for you, and Friday next week again we'll be back to your calls. So that's what's coming up, and a week from now, or a week and a half from now, on the 17th through the 18th, we're going to load the final truck, make the final trip with the dogs, go to Arkansas, and this house will be vacant, and you and I will be working together as part of the TSP community with our headquarters in Hot Springs, Arkansas, from there on out. Thank you again for helping me make that happen. I really appreciate it. And remember, one last thing today, if you like, would like to be a guest or... If you know someone you think would make a good be a good guest, we now have a guest survey, a prospective guest survey on the site. Uh, fill that form out. We'll get in touch with you. We'll set you up or we'll set uh, your counterpart up for a guest uh, appearance on the show. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for